0: The book of Ezekiel, and we will be in chapter 37 this morning. Ezekiel chapter 37. I have often heard it said, and perhaps you have too, that truth is stranger than fiction. Sometimes just by watching the news, that becomes apparent. You watch shows, sometimes uh, with a sense of incredulity and sometimes with a sense of amazement, realizing no one could make this up. It is just too unbelievable. And at the same time, uh, when it comes to the Bible, there are also many things where we see very clearly truth is stranger than fiction. You just couldn't make this stuff up. Likewise, if there is in any sense, kind of the high point for that kind of story, the high point for that kind of uh, place in the Bible where you just say, this is so wild, this is so uh, unimaginable, it must be true, then that must be the book of Ezekiel. For he is a prophet like no other in the pages of the Bible. If I was to pull off, uh, try to pull off some of the things that God told him to do, uh, I think I would be out of here in two shakes, uh, uh, kicked out by by some of you. You say, it's just, it's too much. And yet that is exactly what God called him to do. He called him not just to preach a message, but to graphically, to visibly uh, oftentimes live out that message as well, both with uh, strange personal behavior, with sign acts and play acting, everything imaginable to get the attention of his people who were exiled in their sin. For example, uh, Ezekiel has told things. Uh, these are some of the things that you will find if you read through the whole book, you will find God telling Ezekiel to cook his food with dung. You will find him telling Ezekiel to lay on his side for weeks and years. And we do not know uh, if perhaps because of the, the nature of his uh, ministry, if he literally laid on his side for years, or if perhaps lay, he laid on his side and held up a little sign that said, five years later, and then he gets up. Because this is another thing God told him to do. He said, build a model of Jerusalem and then destroy it. And so here you have a, a prophet of God building these sandcastles. People saying, what what is Ezekiel up to now? And then he wipes this, all this thing out that he spent all this time making. And people are saying, well, what was that? And he said, that was Jerusalem, which is about to fall. He continues to tell him that uh, for the very the early part of his ministry, in fact, Ezekiel is forbidden to speak, not just by command, but by divine power. The root of his tongue is literally stuck to his mouth so that he will not say anything other than proclaim the judgments of God upon the people of Israel more sadly when ezekiel's wife's, when ezekiel 's wife dies, Ezekiel is forbidden from publicly mourning her again as a sign of the sinfulness and the utter depravity of Israel. Well, in all these things, all of this um, amazing Uh, ministry that Ezekiel has had, even more amazing was the visions of God and his glory that he was granted. He was given amazing insight into the heavenly realities that were so otherworldly, that so took him by surprise and defied his wildest imagination that more than once in the midst of this vision, Ezekiel actually passes out and God has to come and give him uh, consciousness again and, and tells him, continue to look at the vision, see and behold the truth that i is telling you that you must proclaim to God's people. And in all of these things, there is also an intensity to his ministry. Ezekiel is not playing games. He is not there for laughs. He is not there for shock value. He is there to do the work of God in the midst of his people, challenging them in the face of their sin about their current circumstances. If you have never read, the book of Ezekiel before. If you don't know anything about him, you need to know that he was living among the exiles from the people of God. He was living as a captive in Babylon as a result of judgment from God. Like so many others, he was carried off just a few years before Jerusalem was completely destroyed into exile along with the king and the royal family and the other leaders of Israel. Ezekiel himself was a priest He would have grown up in Jerusalem, living among the leadership of God's people. He may have also heard the preaching ministry of Jeremiah that we looked at uh, several weeks ago, as well as some of the other prophets, Uh, though he was intending to begin priestly ministry at 30. He was cut off from the temple, off in exile, and therefore at the age of 30, God called him to a prophetic ministry instead. But at the end, despite what he may have heard from other people, the message that he has is his own, given to him directly by God to deliver to his people. Now, whenever we come to a book like Ezekiel, wherever we come, frankly, to lots of parts of the Bible, the first question, whether we will admit it or not, that comes to our minds is, how can this message delivered to an ancient people, a specific people at a specific faraway time have any significance to me? Practically speaking, next Tuesday, when I have to pay my bills and I have an argument with my spouse and my kids are out of control, and I lose my job, how does this going to help me? Well, the reality is that despite the specificity of the message, it nevertheless addresses universal human conditions. It addresses the reality of our lives here in the 21st century as much as it does the lives of Israel back even before, hundreds of years before even the coming of Christ. So this morning, as we seek to turn, turn our attention to Ezekiel, what we want to see is not just a message for Israel in his day, but a message for us in our day as. Well. So I would encourage you to follow along as I read chapter 37 from the book of Ezekiel. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and sent me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, Son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army." Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, take a stick and write on it. For Judah and the people of Israel associated with it. Then take another stick and write on it. For Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him. And join them one into another, into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. And when your people say to you, will you not tell us what you mean by these things? Say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am about to take the stick of Joseph that is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel associated with them, and I will join it with the stick of Judah and make them one stick, that they may be one in my hand. When the sticks on which you write are in your hands before their eyes, then say to them, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone and will gather them together from all around and bring them to their own land." And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king over them. And they shall no longer be two nations and, and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all the backsliding in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey them. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them. And will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling shall be with them and I will be their God. And they shall be my people." Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. This is the word of God to us this morning. Ezekiel's ministry, and in reality all of... The book of Ezekiel has two main objectives. First, to remind Israel of the sin that caused God's judgment to fall upon them. And in the second place, to encourage Israel by proclaiming the promise of restoration. This is the twin focus, the emphasis that Ezekiel is proclaiming to God's people. Remember the depravity of your sin, but take hope because God is going to restore you. And in fact, that's what we see in this passage this morning, as well as throughout the entire book. And yet this double emphasis is also built upon the very foundation of God's own character that again permeates the entirety of the book of Ezekiel. So as we begin to think about the book and our passage specifically, we want to first see the supremacy of God's glory and sovereignty. The supremacy of God's glory and sovereignty. That is the foundation uh, that runs throughout the very book itself without this foundation the message of judgment and redemption would in fact fall to the ground that is to say they would lack any kind of weight to them think about it like this for a second if i were to stand up here maybe not right now but at some point and i would begin to uh talk about the current political scene and i would talk about what it means for both political parties and i would talk about how it would affect our economy should you listen to me Well, some might, but no, you shouldn't. Why? Because I'm an idiot? No. I have no right to pontificate on those things because I know nothing about them, frankly. I'm not in Washington. I'm not there in the midst of it. I'm not plugged into the political scene. I don't know people that move around in the houses of power. I know very little about economics other than you should save more than you spend. That's about the extent of it. Nevertheless, nevertheless, that is not who God is. If God were just some local deity like all the other nations, if he was just a small God isolated to one people in one land, then they should take no interest in this message. But that is not who he is. He is the God of all gods and the King of all kings. He is the Lord over all other lords. He is one who is supreme in glory and in sovereignty. Therefore, when the people hear the message that the prophet brings, they should listen, obey, and trust in that God and believe that message. At the very beginning of the book, Ezekiel says, as I was among the exiles by the Chabar Canal, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. Now, where is he at? Where is this Chebar Canal? Well, frankly, you probably don't know, and it's really not that important that you know exactly where it is. Other than this, it's not in Israel. Again, Ezekiel is not in the promised land. He is not where he should be. Instead, he is like much of the rest of the people of Israel in exile in Babylon, And for those of us that would not ace a class in biblical geography, Ezekiel makes it clear the importance of where he is at. He says in verse 3 that this canal of Chabar is in the land of the Chaldeans. Now that should be significant to you. That should ring your biblical knowledge bell. Because if you've read the book of Genesis, you'll know something very significant happened in the land of the Chaldeans. Someone was called from that land, a man named Abram, who would one day become Abraham. He wrote, was raised in the land of the Chaldeans, and God called him out of that land. He said, trust in me, I will bless you, and I will bless you so much that you become a blessing to the nations. You must follow me by faith to a land that I will show you, and I will give you descendants so much that they will become a great nation. And in the land that I take you, I will give that land to them in which to dwell." Abraham was obviously the father of the Israelite people, but now here sits Ezekiel not in the land of Abraham, not in the land that was promised to him, not in the land that was promised to his descendants. Instead, he is back in the land of the Chaldeans. He is on the exact opposite end of all the promises God has been making to his people throughout the centuries through his word and his prophets and his law. The question that would have been on their minds is this, has God forgotten us? We're not supposed to be in the land of the Chaldeans. We're supposed to be in the land of Canaan. Our land, the land that God gave us in fulfillment of His promises to Abraham. And so in verse seven or verse 11, the people say, Our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, and we are indeed cut off. They believe God has abandoned them. They are not in God's land, worshiping at God's temple, under the rule of God's king. How could God be with them? They feel that in their sinfulness, God has broken the covenant relationship and abandoned them to the nations around. Yet in this very chapter, as chapter one, as Ezekiel sits in exile, he has given a vision of the glory of God. And frankly, it is a wild vision. I wish I had time to read it. In fact, Uh, I wish we had not only just time to read Ezekiel chapter 1 and go through this whole vision, I wish that really we could just set aside about five hours and we would literally read through the whole book. And as we went through it, I would just stop and make some comments and draw out some application and draw some links to the New Testament. But I doubt many of you want to sit for five hours listening to Ezekiel, at least not this morning. So let me just summarize for you the vision of the glory of God that he has uh, in chapter 1, there are these strange angelic beings, four of them, and each of them have four faces. They look part human, part animal. They have multiple sets of wings. They stand with their backs to each other, forming a kind of box in the empty space. Uh, uh, behind their backs, there are torches and flaming fires and lightning. And then next to each of these angelic beings, there are wheels within wheels, giant wheels, so on edge uh, this way, so that way they cannot be toppled over. And above these angelic beings, is this platform this giant kind of sphere of something that he says looks like ice and then above that is god himself on his throne blazing with an intensity so it looks like he is metal on fire circled around this glowing rainbow of all colors and ezekiel says such was the appearance of the glory of god can you imagine seeing that thing Now, like all of these visions, you have to understand that what he is seeing is not literally God on his throne, circled around a rainbow. The angels do not literally have these appearances. All of these things is specific, prophetic, apocalyptic imagery to tell you certain things about what he has seen. Through the different images, he's being told spiritual realities. But for our purposes this morning, the thing that we need to remember, the thing that is important that we need to understand is that Ezekiel doesn't just say, this was the vision of God. He says, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. Remember that the glory of God was a sign of God's presence among his people. So when they left Egypt and wandered in the wilderness, the glory of the Lord appeared as a pillar of cloud during the day and as a pillar of fire at night. It was God's way of saying, follow me, I am with you. Then when they built the temple, not just the tabernacle, but the actual physical structure that would remain in one place, they dedicated to it. And in a blazing manifestation of his glory, God came down. He descended and made his presence known in the holy of holies in the heart of that temple god was saying worship me for i am with you and now ezekiel has this incredible vision of the glory of god while he sits on the banks of the chabar in the land of the chaldeans what is god saying he says though you're in exile though you're cut off from everything though you think that i've abandoned you remember me because i am with you i am with you The Lord is not just some local pagan God who draws strength from the land and the people that is worshipped by Him. He is the one true God that exists sovereignly in glory among all nations and all peoples. And so here, even in exile, God appears on what is this mobile throne traveling along with His people in exile not wobbly, threatening to fall off, but with power and majesty of these angelic beings filled with God's spirit, move him along exactly where he wants to be, strengthening and encouraging and protecting his people even in the judgment of exile. A few years back, I saw John McCain being interviewed on the David Letterman program and he was talking about an event that happened to him in... Vietnam. He was, of course, as you will remember, a prisoner of war. And he said that for most of his time, he was confined to his cell. He was not able to to get out. He was not able to leave. He was not able to move around. He was just stuck in the cell. But he said there was one particular guard who had shown him one day the smallest amount of grace by loosening the cords that bound him, giving the chafing of his wrists a break. He was still bound. He was still a prisoner, but his sentence was lightened. And he said it was the following Christmas. He said he'd almost forgotten that it was Christmas until someone, uh, someone reminded him of that. And he was led out of his cell by this same prisoner who had shown a little bit of kindness to him earlier. And he said with the rifle still in his hand, he motioned him out. And for one of the few times he was able to actually get out of his cell, breathe crisp air that was not uh, stinky and dank from his cell and look up and gaze at the stars. And he said the the, the guard kind of uh, looked around a little bit and seeing that it was only them there, he took the butt of his rifle and in the sand between him and John McCain, he drew the sign of the cross. And John McCain said it was probably the best part of his time ever in the Vietnam War. What was What was God saying to John McCain there? He was saying this, in the midst of this terrible war with a communist country that is known for its atheism, for its its adamant belief that there is no God. Here was one of God's people serving John McCain, bringing comfort and encouragement and assurance even in the midst of this situation. God was saying, I have not forgotten you. Yet how much more comforting... How much more assuring was it for Ezekiel to be on the river that day? How much more comforting to see a vision of the very glory of God not back in Jerusalem heightening your fear but on this moving throne going about in your very midst while you are in exile. How much more assuring that nothing can stop this sovereign Lord from being with His people, from fulfilling His promises. Friends, even today, some of you are here and you feel far away from God. Because of your circumstances, you feel as if God has forgotten you. Some of you, because of your persistent sin, sin that you cannot seem to overcome, perhaps sin that you don't want to overcome, you feel as if God is far from you, that He has abandoned you. But you need to know, God has not gone anywhere. God has not abandoned you. God has not forgotten you. God is still there. The same glorious sovereign God who preserved his people to the exile is still the God who resides on the throne in heaven today. And if you feel far from God, it is only because you have moved away from him. And yet even to those exiles in judgment, so also today he says, all you need to do is come to me and I will receive you. I am here in all of my glory to be with you. As we think about the supremacy of God's glory and His sovereignty, we can see this most clearly against the backdrop of Israel's sin. The question that we have to ask is, why did God have to appear to Ezekiel in this way in the first place? And the answer is because of the consistent, unrepentant rebellion of Israel. This is the second thing that we want to see from the book of Ezekiel this morning, the second main theme that is pressed home, and that is the wickedness of Israel's sin the wickedness of Israel's sin. And we see two things about this sin. First of all, we see its offensiveness before God. We see its offensiveness before God. Part of Ezekiel's calling is to remind Israel just how offensive their sin is before God. In chapter 20, he recounts their history, showing over and over again as God reaches out His hand, giving them blessing, that Israel takes the blessing, thank you very much, but then turns away from God in pursuit of other gods. Even more graphic though is the picture of Israel presented in chapter 16. Here God wants them to come to grips with the the sheer audacity and offensiveness of their sin. He begins by reminding uh, Israel how he found her. He says, you were like a baby that was abandoned, cast off, still bloody with the umbilical cord coming out of your belly, laying in an open field. No one wanted you, but I came to you. I saw you, I found you, I rescued you, I cleaned you off, I gave you life. And he says, but then you grew up. You grew up into be a young woman and yet still no one loved you. No one wanted you. No one set your affection on you. So I took you to be my bride. Here is what God says. He says, I adorn you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain around your neck. I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. What love and affection and grace to Israel! Yet how did she repay him? He says she committed adultery by going after false gods. He goes on to say this. You took some of your garments that I gave you and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore like has never been done nor ever shall be done. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver which I had given you and made for yourself images of men and with them played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them and set my oil and my incense before them. And also my bread that I gave you, I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey. You set before them for a pleasing aroma. And so it was, declares the Lord God. And you took your sons and your daughters whom you had borne to me. And these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whorings so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? And in all your abominations, and all your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, wallowing in blood." You really need to go home and read the rest of chapter 16 because it gets even more graphic. And in the the kind of context that we're at, uh, it's not appropriate to read the rest of it. But what he is trying to do, and I hope what you even felt there by that language, is a kind of nails across the chalkboard in your soul. As he describes Israel's sin, as a woman who has been shown every love, every grace by a husband, and yet she goes out taking the very gifts that have been given to her by her husband and giving herself over to different men over and over and over again. You begin to capture, when you allow your mind to linger on that imagery for a little while, the true offensiveness of sin before God, the odious nature of it towards Him. Therefore, it's no surprise that judgment comes on Israel for her sin. The wickedness of her sin has also brought judgment from God, judgment from God. In chapter 37, which we read earlier, Ezekiel is taken up in this vision of God and he is immediately confronted with a scene of total death, a valley of bones. What he sees is the slaughter of a battlefield. He sees a slaughter of this battlefield and, you know, there are times when... Well, have you ever seen the movie Gettysburg? Uh, there it opens with this scene from this great slaughter on a battlefield. There are dead bodies everywhere and there are uh, the the men that were called the death pickers by some. They literally picked up the dead people and threw them on carts and took them back to be buried. And in fact, uh, such was history that says the stench was so bad in some of those places that uh, men literally passed out uh, and wound up dying from dehydration, laying in the hot sun sometimes. It was a horrible thing. And yet, in the opening of Gettysburg, a true story, they're in the midst of all this carnage There is one man whose life still lingers and is able to be saved and in fact winds up being uh, the hero of the story as it were. But Ezekiel is shown by God that cannot happen here. That is is not even a possibility. He leads, if you remember what we read, he leads Ezekiel among these dry bones. He doesn't say, take a glance at the scene. No, God puts his face in it and he says, look at these bones. Look at them row after row after row of fallen warriors. There is no life in this place. There is no chance of someone clinging on. These aren't corpses. They are skeletal remains. Dry remains at that. They are a long dead army and god says this is my people spiritually they are lifeless they are lifeless dead in judgment with no hope and yet the the lord asked the prophet you've seen these bones now tell me son of man can these bones live now just think about that question for a minute He's just taking you through and you've, just, you, you've seen all of these bones just scattered off, broken around. And, and now God says, total death. Now can they live? I mean, that would be like going down to the Gulf and seeing uh, the, the, the devastation that has taken down there uh, to, to the animals and to the ocean and to the wetlands and someone walking up beside you and saying, can't they just put the, all, all the oil back in the ground? You'd be like, are you an idiot? You know, mm, you give them one of those in the forehead. No, you can't put it back in the ground. And Ezekiel is certainly tempted to say, well, you know, no, there's no life. But he doesn't say that, does he? Because he knows it's God. Nevertheless, when we look at it, when Israel looked at what they had done, when they looked at themselves as this big pile of bones, as we write in the rest of chapter 37, they have found themselves, because of their sin, split into two kingdoms, not one. They have no king. They have no spiritual leaders. They're forced to live in a foreign country without a temple even to worship God. They feel as if they have no hope. And all of this has happened, not because the nations were so powerful, not because God was such a horrible beast of a God. All of this fell on Israel because of her sin. So the question, the question still stands for Ezekiel. How can there ever be life again in these bones? How, Ezekiel? Tell me, is it even possible for spiritual life to come back to these people? I think one of the things that we tend to forget is, frankly, just how how odious sin is before God. Some of the older Puritans used to try and capture this this idea with titles like this for books, The Sinfulness of Sin and The Evil of Evils, a study on sin. The pastors who wrote those books tried to help their people realize what sin is, just how unthinkably offensive it is. So unthinkable that even the smallest of sins that if we are to have forgiveness for even the smallest infraction against God to escape His wrath, it was necessary that Jesus Himself, God's holy and perfect Son, had to stand in our place and die as a sacrifice for our sins. It was the spilling of Christ's blood that was required for you to be forgiven of things like pride, lust, gossip, lying, idolatry. When we think about that, It should turn our stomachs when we sin. It should literally bring us to the point of tasting bile in our throats when we realize just how horrible sin is. But the reality I fear is that most days we still don't get it. We don't think that way about sin. We are masters at rationalizing it away as a mistake. We are experts at saying it can't be that bad because God's already forgiven me for those things. And the reality could not be farther from the truth. When we sin, we are defying reality, the very nature of why we were made, to worship and glorify God we are committing cosmic treason. We're not rebelling against some despot leader. We are rebelling against him who not only gave us life, but is in himself worthy of every ounce of love and praise that we can muster. One who has never shown us anything but grace and love and mercy. Even in God bringing judgment on sin, we are shown mercy. How do you you get that, you may say? Simply this, because we have sinned, even in the smallest way, we deserve we deserve an eternity in hell immediately and yet what does god do but give us time in his mercy he still allows us to live to have life and breath and to love and to have families and to experience simple joys like a rose or magnificent joys like the birth of a child all the while patiently giving us time to repent of our sins to come to the end of ourselves and turn towards Him. Even in the midst of their punishment for sin, God still seeks out Israel with the promise of restoration. Even in judgment, God is still showing them love and mercy. Therefore, there is the hope of God's promised salvation, the last thing that we'll see this morning the hope of God's promised salvation. Here we see three things that God has promised about salvation. First, we see that salvation comes by God's power. Salvation comes by God's power. Notice that when God asks Ezekiel the question, can these bones live? Ezekiel doesn't actually say no. Why? Because he recognized the sovereign power of God. You can't, he's not going to say, God, no, you can't do that. They're too far gone. You can't, you can't bring life back. He knows better. But what he doesn't know is if God is willing He doesn't know if God is willing. See, that's two different things. Yes, God has the power to act, but does he want to act? Because this lifelessness, this deadness, has come as judgment from his hand. So maybe he wants them to live. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe he wants them to stay dead. Ezekiel does not know the answer. Therefore, he answers very wisely Oh, Lord God, you know. You know the answer to the question. Isn't that great? I mean, how many teachers would, would like you to answer that one in class, right? You know, is this possible? I don't know, but you know, teacher. You know, and yet that's the best answer to give at this point. And God is clear in just a very short while. Yes, these bones can live. And yes, I will be the one to give them life. How? He says, Ezekiel, you preach to the bones preach to the bones he says as i preached there was a sound and behold a rattling and the bones came together bone to bone and i looked and behold there were sinews on them and flesh came upon them and skin covered them god brings them back to life not even as some ghostly skeletons it's not pirates of the caribbean or something they come back as flesh and blood people i mean frankly wouldn't you want to be there for that vision thousands and perhaps millions of dead bodies rising up, joints and, and bones coming together, skulls and jaws latching on, eyeballs growing back in sockets, skin and hair recovering. I mean, that would have been amazing. And yet there is no life in these bodies. They are still just empty bodies. And it seems perhaps the word of God has failed. And yet And yet before Ezekiel can even let that thought fully form in his mind, God says, you've preached the bones, now preach to the wind. Preach the wind and tell the wind, call it forth from afar to give life to these bones. So he says, I prophesied as I was commanded. And the breath came into them and they lived and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army. Of course, God says, these bones represent Israel. And God says, I am the one that must give them life if they are to live again. I am the one who will give them life. You see, Israel just can't decide one day, we're done sinning, all done. No more idolatry, no more whoring after false gods, no more ignoring God, no more thumbing our nose at Him, no, we're done sinning, we're going to live good lives. God says, and that's not going to happen because spiritually you're dead and dead men don't get up and walk but I can give them life. I will give them life. It is, in fact, what they need. An invasion of the holy presence of God to transform them into His holy people. This is the second thing. Salvation brings a changed life to God's people. Ezekiel not only had a vision of the dead bones, but he is told to act out for the people what God will do. So he takes two sticks, symbolizing the two groups of God's people, and he's told, bring them back together. God says, "I will. this is what this means. I will take the people of Israel from the nations from among which they have gone and will gather them from all around and bring them to their land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel and one king shall be king over them and they shall no longer be two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all the backsliding in which they have sinned and I will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God my servant David shall be king over them and they shall have one shepherd and they shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. The salvation that God provides is not just one of justification, not just one of forgiveness, but also of transformation. He comes to rescue His people both from the judgment for their sin as well as removing the problem of their sin itself. He does what they cannot do. He does what we today cannot do. We cannot change our sinful hearts, but he can do that. And he does do that by the power of his spirit, working the lives of his people through the proclamation of his word. He so transforms his people that they can stop sinning. They can resist temptation and press on in holiness, even as he himself is holiness. And all of this is done through his Messiah. Number three, salvation comes through God's Messiah. My servant David shall be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall dwell in the land that I give to my servant Jacob where their fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forevermore. He will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst. God promises a leader will come, a Messiah, and he will be the fountainhead of all the change that will take place in Israel. Both their relocation back to their land, but specifically their relocation back into the presence of God for. Ever and when we get to the New Testament it is clear that it is Jesus Christ that is the son of David that has come to be the savior of God's people he comes not only in fulfillment of all God's plans to redeem his people but he comes specifically to stand in their place and take the judgment they deserve for their sins by dying on the cross but then being raised back to life he is forever the leader of God's people more than that Christ becomes the place where God meets sinners he fulfills the hopes of a new temple he is the temple the sanctuary in Christ God dwells among his people. You remember when Christ has gone into the temple and he's cleared it out and he says you guys are making a mockery of what God wants and the Pharisees come and they're like, you know, dude, you know, what, you know, what is this all about and everything? And, and, then, and then they continue later on to continue to not know who he is and they're like, give us a sign, give us a sign. Show us your authority. And he says, look, here's the only sign you're going to get destroy this temple, and in three days, I'm going to raise it up. And they're like, Yeah, right, come on. It took years to build this thing. It took decades. You're just going to bring it back in three days? And the apostle John says, they did not know he was speaking of his body. It's great. Because what it says is, it doesn't matter where you're at. It doesn't matter what country you're in. We don't look to a building to meet with God. We look to His Son, Jesus Christ. So even when at the end of the chapter, at the end of the book, Ezekiel is given a very detailed description of this physical temple, it's not meant for them to actually build. In fact, if you compare those descriptions with what the descriptions were of the actual temple that was built, you'll find there's a lot of detail that's lacking. Why? Because it's not the promise of a real physical temple in which you go and offer a sacrifice rather it is the promise of a perfect temple that will never pass away and that temple is Jesus Christ Himself. He now is the meeting place between God and man. He is where we go to encounter the joy and rest that God promises to His people. Encountering Christ the salvation He gives does not come by what we earn or what we deserve but rather by the grace of God that provides it. The very last verse of Ezekiel ends with this glorious hope. When God sends his king to save and rule over his people, they will be changed by the presence of God and never sin again. And then we read chapter 48, verse 35. The name of that city from that time on shall be, The Lord is there. Isn't that marvelous? The Lord is there. This morning, the only hope for Christians to live faithfully before God the only hope, if you're not a Christian, to experience the salvation of the Lord is to draw near to the holy God of glory through Christ. You must draw near to Him and faith, and then and only then will you be changed. Then and only then will you find forgiveness and life. Only then will you have hope despite your sinfulness. Father, we are thankful for your prophet Ezekiel for his faithfulness throughout all time. We're thankful for His faithfulness in delivering the message that Your people needed to hear. And God, we pray that we would have heard it as well. For Father, we are in so many ways just like Israel, and yet we are different in this. We have seen the fulfillment of the promises. God, we have seen Christ in all of His glory. And so Father, we pray that Lord, He would be lifted up. He would be exalted, not just with our lips, but via our very lives as we look to Him in faith, trusting That coming to you through him will not only bring forgiveness, but a transformed life. That, Father, in your holy presence, we will be changed. God, we pray for these things, both for our good and for the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.